Hey everyone, Jonathan here. Usually at the beginning of these episodes, I'll mention something from the news or most likely tell you a quick story to get you into the episode. But since this is the final episode of this season of Telescope, I'm going to tell you the story of this show. We started it because of COVID. The whole world was shutting down all at once. It felt like a time to talk to people, to try to understand what was going on. And we did that, not knowing where exactly it would go or how long it would go for. We said we'd release Telescope episodes three times a week for the foreseeable future. But if you remember back in March, when the lockdown started, some of us thought that future might just last a couple weeks or maybe a couple of months. By June, everything would be back to the way it was before, right? How wrong we were. When we came up with the show, we gave it a tagline, welcome to the new normal. But the fact of the matter is, when this show started, none of this was normal yet. Four months later, COVID, living in partial lockdown, wearing masks, keeping distance, it's still uncomfortable. I don't think any of us are really used to it. But it is starting to become more normal. And we do understand things a little bit better. That is, in some ways, why we started this show. To try to understand the unprecedented thing that was happening to all of us. I just, like, I've never had a kind of love I wanted to shout from the rooftops before. You know, not to sound so cliche, but... Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. For the past four months, we've brought you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. Today is episode 50, the last of the season. And in this episode, we're looking back. We're going to check in with five people who helped us understand what was happening to them, to all of us, in the moments when we spoke to them. We're checking in with some of them to see how they're doing how they've adjusted to this new normal, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, so they they sort of left it up to us. Remember Stacy Tymon? We first heard from Stacy back in March, right as she and her husband were making a really tough decision, whether to continue her IVF cycle and keep trying to get pregnant not knowing how COVID might affect everything. There were a lot of unknowns about the virus. Her doctors were reluctant to tell her what she should do. And there's so much that we don't know about COVID and we don't know its impacts on pregnancy. So we are sort of leaving the decision in your hands whether or not you want to cancel. She and her husband decided not to go forward with embryo transfer. It just felt like too big of a risk. And then they got another call. They contacted us in mid-April, so about a month after we canceled, and they said, okay, we've now decided that we have a lot more information about pregnant women, and we don't think that COVID transfers from the mother to the fetus. Do you want to start your cycle again? Stacy and her husband live in Wisconsin, but to start up again, they'd have to go to Colorado. It was a big trip, and COVID makes traveling complicated, dangerous. They didn't know if it would be safe to get on a plane or where Stacy would be able to stay when she got to Colorado. 
But they thought it all through, did a lot of research, figured it out. They drove their car and ended up staying at an Airbnb. They asked us all these questions and we decided, yeah, you know what? We want to do it. We think we can do it. And we think we can do it safely. I mean, I was insanely excited. I was like, all right, we can do it. I think my husband, who's like a little bit of a worrier, was like, oh my God, all these things that we have to do. But I was so focused on like, yes, we can move forward. We can do it. We finally got there. Let's load the car with hand sanitizer and like, let's just go. So Stacy did all the appointments, and eventually their clinic did the embryo transfer. Then she went home to Wisconsin. We went to get, you know, what's called a beta test, a blood test, to see if I was pregnant. And we got a call. We agonizingly waited by the phone from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m. when they finally called us, which is like the most nerve-wracking day. Every time your phone vibrates, you check to see if it's them. And they called us at 3 o'clock, and... The nurse said, how are you? And I said, I'm good, how are you? And she said, not as good as you, you're pregnant. Um, and I, we were so excited. You know, there's those tears and we didn't believe it. Like we couldn't quite process it because I didn't feel pregnant at the time. I had been pregnant before. Yeah, so we, we were quite excited that after all of this drama and stress and canceling and starting over that we were able to be successful, that we were able to, to get pregnant. Five days later, um, I did miscarry again. So we made it almost exactly to the same point that we had last time. Um, And we lost the pregnancy. It was a little bit, happened a little bit faster than it did the first time. The first time it sort of dragged on for days. This was almost like I started feeling sick in the morning and by like four hours later, we had already lost the pregnancy. So um, I think it feels a little extra hard (laughs) to lose it this time because of all we felt like we, all the time and the risk and the time apart um, that we put in to make this happen and then to be successful and to lose it was really hard. But, you know, that's part of the process, unfortunately. Stacy and her husband don't know what's next. I really started to think, do we really have to do this again? Do we really have to start over? Like, what? how much are we going to have to go through? How much loss? How much, you know, financial everything, how much time, you know, to get to that end goal. And, you know, do you have it in you? Do you have the strength in your relationship to start over? Do you have the strength in yourself to start over? For now, they're taking a moment. It's okay to take a step back. It's okay to give yourself space to heal, to figure out what you want, um, and to figure out what the next step is. In some ways, Stacy and her husband are back where they started. They have more information about the virus, but if anything, it's even tougher to figure out the right thing to do. If it's safe to go back to Colorado as cases are spiking again all over the country. Stacy's caught between the reality of the virus, which hasn't gone anywhere, and the fact that in many parts of the U.S., people are acting like it has. That's something that came up with almost everyone we checked back in with. 
like Thomas. Like a lot of people, Thomas lost his job back in mid-March. He's a set dresser in Hollywood who just finally joined his union when the pandemic hit. We heard from him in early April. The state of California on, I think, June 12th, I think it was, um, said it was okay to return to work for entertainment, the entertainment industry. But a lot of union projects, bigger things like TV shows and movies, have just been kind of postponing and kind of waiting in the ranks to see what happens. Thomas is still getting unemployment bolstered by the CARES Act, which Congress passed in March, which boosts unemployment benefits by $600 a week. With the extra $600 a week, I know that I've got rent. I know that I've got, you know, gas money. I know that I can pay my car insurance, all my other bills. And I also can maintain my personal savings that I have built up previous to this pandemic. When we first spoke to Thomas back in March, that extra $600 a week hadn't kicked in yet. Thomas wasn't sure what he was going to do for money. At one point, his union suggested he look for work at a grocery store, a job which we've all come to understand as one of the most dangerous right now. One of the jobs that puts you at the most risk for catching the virus. Still, he considered it. So I know that I brought up, <laughs> if I have to, I'll end up working at a grocery store. I did not. Did I think about it? Yeah, I did, just because there were points where I just wanted to kind of have a purpose, you know? It's still not out of the question for him. The extra CARES money is set to expire at the end of July if Congress doesn't pass an extension. Congress is worried people aren't going to want to go back to work because they are living too fat off of unemployment. But wow, who's going to go back to work if everyone's dead? I understand why they think that. But for some reason, we're listening to politicians about a medical issue and not scientists and doctors. Thomas is anxious about the extra money, worried Congress won't extend it. But he recently got some great news. His old job called him to say the show he'd been working on is ramping up again. So he may be headed back to work very soon. I don't have a specific start date yet. I have kind of just an idea of August. I'm going back to the same project with what I assume is the same team. But of course, coronavirus cases are back on the rise. So Thomas's show could be put on hold again and the extra unemployment might not get extended. Nothing is guaranteed. I could still very much end up working at a grocery store, especially if, you know, the $600 a week ends and shows don't pick back up in August. It's going to come to a point where I have to put myself out there. I have to be as safe as I can. I have to hope that everyone else is being safe around me and just hope for the best. This is a really difficult time, scary and uncertain. We heard that from all of you and from our guests, not knowing if their jobs would come back, not knowing if going to work, leaving the house at all, would mean getting sick. That meant that doing this show didn't always lead us to particularly happy stories. They were often anxious, upsetting. But we've tried to bring joy into the show as much as we could. And one particularly bright spot was our conversation with Julia Bainbridge, host of the podcast, The Lonely Hour. She talks often and openly about loneliness, about being lonely herself, even before the pandemic. We spoke to Julia in early May because of something wonderful that had happened during her time in lockdown. She'd fallen in love. 
with someone she'd never met in person. As we prepared to do the show, we knew we were going to have to check back in with Julia. We were hoping it would be good news that their relationship was surviving the pandemic, but we were bracing ourselves for the possibility that it might not have. Are we still calling him David or should we reveal that that that's not at all his name? (laughs) Good news, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine on my side. They're still together. I also think my food delivery is outside. Sorry. (laughs) He's grabbing that. When Julia and David first started talking, the idea was that he was going to move to New York to get a job in the restaurant industry. But then, of course, that was stalled by COVID. And then do you want to say how it happened ultimately? I guess, were you ever not sure it was going to happen? No, I was always sure. I was just waiting for, just to see what things were going to look like. Um, I was just waiting it out, I guess, in El Paso. And then it's when I got a job offer and uh, decided to move up. It was a fun journey. Despite everything, David managed to land a pretty big job as a chef at a New York restaurant. Like at, at this time when we're all not sure if the restaurant industry will exist in the way that it did, and certainly a lot of restaurants will close, he was offered, you know, a full-time high-level gig with a salary that he wanted in a really competitive city. So it was emotional for two reasons, not only to have a job, you know, to get a job during this time, but also finally after all this time we were going to be living in the same place and we could actualize this, whatever this was. So David leaves his parents' house in El Paso, makes the drive to New York. He and Julia decide he'll go straight to her apartment so they can meet. You know, now it's 30 minutes away, it's five minutes away. Like I'm getting pictures of the GPS as he gets closer. And then finally I see an image of the exterior of my apartment building. (laughs) Jonathan, like, my heart was pounding and my palms were sweating like I was in middle school. And I was texting my best friend, like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, he's here, he's here, he's here. I was so, yeah. were you so nervous? Were you was, as nervous, I nervous as I was? but I had to act a little cool. <laughs> I was not cool. I have to say I'm someone who, like, kind of has game and, like, can, can be slick. Like, I was n- not. <laughs> This moment they've been talking about, fantasizing about for months, was finally happening. Yeah, and I think you always try to picture what it's going to be like, right? And what you're going to feel. And I think she was always saying, what if you don't like me when you see me? If it's not the same? Yeah, what if just like the energy is off? What if when we hug, it doesn't feel right? What if... It was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) They both thought about what would happen if it didn't feel right. Or even worse, if only one of them felt like it was right. But luckily, that didn't happen. I have never, like, so... I've never been so clear before about my feelings and so clear about them and sure of them and been made to feel supported in them by him. I just, like, I've never had a kind of love I wanted to shout from the rooftops before. We should do that one day. (laughs) It's it's really, like, 
a beautiful thing. I don't know what, what, it's just, it's very pure. We'd already heard all about the beginning of their relationship from Julia's perspective. And it sounds like it's actually pretty similar for David. Yeah, I mean, I think when we first started talking, we weren't really looking for anything. You know, it just kind of developed organically and it really, uh, it made this whole pandemic not seem so bad when every time we talked, you know, which was a lot. (laughs) Every day for hours and it just, we kind of created this little bubble, I like to call it, that, you know, we were safe inside of this bubble and we would kind of forget that there was all these bad things happening outside of the of our bubble, you know, and it was, but it was safe in there and the future seemed very optimistic. I think that's why I was worried though, like the way he describes it is true that there was this bubble we created at a time when a lot of things in the world and even in our lives were were dark and scary. And so that's why I was nervous, like, are we just life rafts for each other, right? During this particular time, and then it's not going to last. And I guess, like, the jury is sort of still out on that. Like, we're still not in normal, normal times. But we do know that, you know, we've both been through struggles of our own that in person we've been here to support each other through. So it hasn't all been, you know, rainbows which I think is a testament, right, to hopefully this being solid and lasting. And for Julia, now that she's really in this relationship in person, she's realizing that it's changing her, changing the way she sees her future. The way in which this relationship has, like, ignited real excitement about what the future might look like is is new and exciting. And I can't say that I've ever played forward my future and been um, really excited. All the things that we fantasize about doing together feel like they could happen because none of the things we're fantasizing about are particularly extravagant or above and beyond in the same way that on the show I was saying, like, we were like, I just want to fucking go to CVS with you. (laughs) You know, we talk about, like, what it would look like in four years when maybe we are not in New York and have a house with a little space and I'll be home after work and have put the kid to bed and, you know, these little kind of sweet, intimate details about a family's home life that are sort of um, everyday things, you know, are the things I think about and feel excitement about and um, feel possible. We started Telescope because of the COVID pandemic. It reached into every corner of our lives, twisting and changing things in unexpected ways. And then at the end of May, George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. It felt like another world-changing event. The reaction to his murder was pervasive and powerful. And many of the people protesting were brand new to the ideas they'd been inspired to march for. Things that used to seem impossible, like defunding the police. In the Black Lives Matter protests, they didn't let up. It wasn't just a day or two of marching. It became a movement. Some of those people weren't just protesters, but organizers, like Casey Short. 
who started organizing his first protest down in San Diego, not long after George Floyd's death. This is all still happening. There are still daily protests around the country. And when we caught up with Casey a few weeks ago, he was actually on the streets in the midst of organizing. I'm in uh, downtown San Diego right now, so I'm sorry, it's kind of loud. I actually had to um, come over here and I'm actually planning the route because I actually have a protest coming up on Saturday for um, the justice for Vanessa Gillen. So that's my next protest that I'll have going on in downtown San Diego over at the convention center. Vanessa Gillen is a Fort Hood Army specialist who went missing in April and was later found dead. Her murder was gruesome. Friends and family say she was sexually harassed on base. A soldier is suspected of killing her. It's really important for me to step up and let it be known that what happened with Vanessa was definitely not right and that we got to do something way better. Like the army needs to come up with a zero tolerance policy. Casey says he's got no plans to slow down. He knows there's a lot of work to be done. That's my goal. I'm going to keep on protesting until we actually start seeing real change. Like we're still fighting for defunding the police. We're also, we want to see the abolish of ICE happening in San Diego. We definitely want the children to be released, you know, into some type of custody or some type of foster program for the children that are in the cages right now. So we're going to keep on fighting until we see these changes be implemented. Here's something that's strange about this moment. Things are bad. Thousands and thousands of people are dying or getting really sick. And things are also changing fast. Five months ago, I don't think any of us would have imagined that it'd be possible for entire cities to just shut down. It's scary for things to change like that, of course. But also, there are a lot of problems with how things were before, how things still are. Police brutality against Black people for one, but also homelessness, poverty, rampant xenophobia, wages so low that people have to apply for food stamps to make ends meet. So when things change all at once, really fast, when you get a $1,200 check in the mail from the government, you have to wonder, where was that money before? It feels like a time to demand change. Nicole feels it. She's the Walmart worker who runs a Twitter account, Walmart Unionize. We heard from her in June, about a month ago. Things haven't gotten better since then, and in some ways, they've gotten worse. Most people on my team have been working 40-plus-hour weeks, but on paper, they're still marked down as being part-time or being a temp worker. Last we spoke, Nicole was worried that coronavirus could come to the store where she works, and it did. In our own store, we've had someone test positive, and it's a pretty small store, but the only thing that they really had us do was spend our entire shifts like scrubbing and cleaning everything. Luckily, Nicole says, the coworker called in sick from the time she first had symptoms. So the likelihood that she spread it to the rest of the store seems low. But Nicole's still anxious all the time about catching the virus. All those people are going to be having parties and having big gatherings, and then they're going to keep coming back into the store and shopping without masks and without, you know, distancing themselves, without a care or regard for other people. It's just like a habit now, you know? It's almost like like an instinct reaction, like, oh, keep away from that person. They're buying five, you know, things of hot dog buns. They're having a party. This person's buying a bunch of, you know, birthday party supplies. Get away from them. 
Even Nicole's parents, her family who she was so worried about bringing the virus home to, they've come into the store without masks. Yeah, my family's doing well, even though I see them coming into my store without masks, so it makes me, you know, sketchy, because both of my parents are pretty conservative. Yeah, and then I'm like, I wear a mask eight hours, nine hours a day to try to not bring it home, but you guys are gonna go out the same store and then bring it home to me. That's not fair. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure they still believe it's a hoax. Nicole still doesn't feel safe going to work every day. Doesn't feel like her health and her safety is a priority for Walmart. Like when there were protests in St. Louis, the closest big city, it was hard not to notice the stark difference between how Walmart reacted to a public health threat versus a potential threat to its merchandise. Especially with um, the Black Lives Matter protests, people for sure were like, okay, you know, they'll close the store early and they'll protect us and they'll get us security guards when they think their product is being threatened, but not when we have people out here. It all feels kind of hopeless, but Nicole also sees some hope on the horizon. We have a lot of younger hires now, and I think... They specifically, you know, they know their rights and they know they're not being treated well. And even the veteran workers that I've been with that have actually lasted through the last six months know that, like, this isn't right. Seeing how her colleagues are reacting to everything, it makes Nicole feel like maybe, maybe things might change. I think all retail employees, cashiers, stockers, cart pushers, everyone really need to get together and unionize because there's no better time than now. Employees have never had so much power than now. Maybe, at least, they'll finally get some real hazard pay. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. A big thank you to Stacy, Thomas, Julia, Casey, and Nicole. And thank you to all of our guests over these past four months for trusting us with your stories. And from all of us here at Neon Hum, I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for coming along with us on this ride over the past couple of months. We've loved hearing from you, and we hope that these stories have helped you ride out this unprecedented time and maybe understand it a little bit better. This is the end of season one of Telescope, but we will be back. It won't be this pandemic life again, but it will be stories from far away, up close. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. I am grateful to each and every one of you for the hard, hard work you've put into the show. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Carla Green, reported by Catherine St. Louis, Joanna Clay, Tanner Robbins, Carla Green, and me. It was edited by Vikram Patel and Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. 
Special thanks to Mark Bush, who also engineered episodes of the show. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. And special thanks to everyone here at Neon Hum who contributed to this season of Telescope. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. You can join our Facebook group by searching for Telescope. And if you like the show, don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Thanks for listening. We'll be back. See you in a little while.